0: Amen. Well, today we come to the last book of the wisdom literature, and uh, as I've said, it's probably the one that I, last week I said Ecclesiastes was the one that I've struggled with the most. Uh, this week, I will just echo and say that it's probably now this one that I'm <laughs> I've struggled with the most, and you'll understand why in a moment. But uh, but if you're, if you're just... This is God's story. And we're saying that this is, this is the, the thing that clarifies our lives as we immerse ourselves in the Word of God and understanding the overarching story, the big, big picture story, capital S story of God. Then, as we understand His story, it clarifies our story. Okay? It clarifies our story. And we've, we've talked about Scripture as uh, like glasses you put on. And I'm, I'm looking at a lot of you, a lot of you wearing eyeglasses. I just recently had to order a new eyeglasses. Uh, and, and my vision's like super bad. Like, I've got to have like the high index, triple coated, you know, not just scratch resistant, but, but the one that like make it's they're like that thick to start out with, and then they go to that. Right. And life, life would be a blur. And for many people, for many Christians, life is a blur. Daily life is a blur because we are not looking through the lenses of God's word. If we would look through the lenses of God's Word and we would apply God's truth to our life, then things would become clearer. And that's the goal of this year, is to understand his story so it would clarify our story. And we've been going through the the wisdom books. And what we've seen out of the wisdom books is that that Israel in the Old Testament was called to walk a path, a path of righteousness, a path of life, a, a path that was not a path of folly or foolishness, but a path of wisdom and fear of the Lord. And when they didn't do that, they were choosing death and destruction. But when they did choose to walk on that path, they were led to life and peace and success. And that's not success necessarily in God's, I mean, in in the world's terminology, but that is success in God's terminology. And so, as we've come to the, the wisdom books, what we saw last week is this wisdom has been preserved for us so that we don't make the same mistakes as Israel. And we can know this path of wisdom and that would shape our lives and our perspectives on life so that as we just come and submit to this wisdom, that we see God ordering our steps. This is, this is the answer to the prayer of, of you make known to me the, your paths of righteousness for your namesake. He does that by giving us wisdom through the wisdom literature. And we've seen Job, we've seen Ecclesiastes, we've seen Proverbs, we've seen, um, we've seen the book of Psalms. And today we come to the last book in the wisdom literature, which is the Song of Solomon. Like I said earlier, the most avoided book uh, by most preachers. In fact, it's interesting, uh, every, every week when I study, I always like to get just a variety of opinions. And I listen to, listen to a bunch of different uh, people preach on different topics and all of my go-to older guys that I go to, they don't have any messages listed on, on Song of Solomon. They didn't have any messages listed on Ecclesiastes last week either. I was kind of mad at them, honestly. I'm thinking about writing some email, you know, because I'm, I'm, I'm like, these are important. I, and I'm seeing a lot of younger guys uh, preach on them. And so I think there's, I think there's a reason for that. And, and I think part of that reason is, is because we are, just let's, let's be honest, we are uncomfortable. Last week talking about death, we're uncomfortable talking about death. And this week we're uncomfortable talking about sex. We're just gonna say that, okay? And I, notice all my kids are still in here, okay? So you can trust that I'm not gonna say anything that's not age appropriate, all right? I hope that this will lead you into some conversations, but there will be nothing that I'm gonna pique any curiosity about, okay? i uh, be very sensitive in that, just to let you know. But I do need to set the stage for why the Song of Solomon is important. And to do that, we need to understand something that happened in the middle of the last century called the Sexual Revolution. The Sexual Revolution was a, a time, in beginning in the 1960s, where certain ideas infiltrated culture that rejected the perceived prudish and uh, constrained Judeo-Christian sexual morality on which civilization had been built. And this sexual morality could be boiled down to one thing, marriage. Just marriage between one man and one woman. The sexual revolution was all about throwing off these constraints. This idea that God created men and women to be engaged in marriage to one person of the opposite sex and that monogamy was necessary for personal relational security and family stability. And so you had this throwing off of this, of this morality. And since then, more ideas rooted in this rejection of this morality have captivated the cultural imagination through pop culture. Movies, music, TV shows. You think about how far we've come. How many of you grew up watching the Cosby Show? Cosby Show, of course, it was a staple, right? What did you have portrayed there? You had a sound marriage, guiding children. To walk in wisdom, honestly, and and we can we can just admit that obviously Bill Cosby did not practice what he preached, but at the same time, think about the portrayal of that family. It was very crucial that, that that family be be portrayed as sticking together through through tough times, and that wisdom was passed down from the older to the younger. Well, you turn on the TV now, and the roles are reversed. The kids are the one who are who, the kids are the ones who are smart. Parents don't know anything. And, and on top of that, there is just this detachment from any of these relationships that we would call normal. In fact, the boundaries, they are continually pushing these boundaries to normalize things that are not normal. And so what began as a desire to embrace just premarital sex has now resulted in the normalization of birth control, public nudity, pornography, the legalization of abortion, and the popularization of the LGBTQ movement. But, but when calculating the impact of the sexual revolution, one must include the latest Me Too movement and Time's Up movements Breaking the silence about the pro- proliferation of sexual assault. Well, how did these things come to be? Remember, ideas have consequences and bad ideas have victims. The idea, we, we, this, you're not going to hear this in the mainstream media, but this is absolutely the case. The, the proliferation of sex and taking it outside the confines of marriage and diving into all kinds of deviance from that Judeo-Christian sexual ethic has resulted in the sexual brokenness of our modern day you cannot divorce the two they are absolutely connected and it's great that these things the, the these movements are, are are identifying people who uh, who have been notorious abusers even as we've been journeying through god 's word we have not Cease to say about the people in the book of Judges or about Solomon or David to call them what they were. They were at times immoral people. And we don't need to follow those examples. We need to learn negatively from those examples. And we need to be a people who, who say, no, we have, we have a, a morality that is not just abstract. It's not just something that's out there, but it's something in here and it's something in here. It's something we live by. And we need to rejoice when justice is advanced in the cause Uh, And in the face of uh, what the sexual revolution has brought us. But you've got to admit, there has been a fundamental breakdown of male and female relationships in the workplace and in every other area of life because of the sexual revolution and the distrust. And the assault that has come about because of that distrust. You think about it. Just a couple years ago, and you've heard me say this before, we were mocking Mike Pence for following something called the Billy Graham rule, that he would not ever eat or be in a meeting with a woman that was not his wife alone. And he was just mocked in front of the media for that conviction. And just a few months later, you had the Me Too, me Too movement happen. And so it was kind of this, this uh, hypocrisy in the media, in pop culture, to say, so you're telling me you're going to mock this man for having integrity? But if you had nurtured integrity in these areas of life, then Harvey Weinstein wouldn't have allowed to have been an abuser for years and years and years and years and years. You see, our ethic, our biblical ethic in life has consequences, and they're good. They lead to human flourishing, not brokenness. But we don't need to just, just just stop there. Because the fact is, is that the Me Too movement and all these other kind of things are just kind of, I mean, let's face it, they're out there, right? They're, they're happening in other realms of society. But what you need to realize is that one of the ways that the sexual revolution threatens you as families is in the fact that if your child has an unfiltered or unrestricted, Uh, device such as an internet connected tablet or a phone that they are literally and hear me now parents they are literally one click away from hardcore pornography and if you don't know how to uh, get your kid's device to where it's it's restricted from that kind of content please come and talk to us and I say us being your pastor's because me, Philip, and Tanner have, have specific experience in helping families, because primarily our own families, right? Helping families understand how to navigate uh, being a parent in a digital age. You might be an analog parent in a digital age. And if you are, then I've got good news for you. The second weekend in August, uh, we are going to be putting on a conference called Being an Analog Parent in Digital Age. And it's all about helping you as, as, as families. Understand how to protect your kids from the sexual revolution coming into your home through mobile technology Because many people are just they're uneducated about how to do this and it doesn't need to be that way And if you're a grandparent and you've got kids who are giving their kids uh, Technology and you don't know if it's if it's restricted then start that conversation because their innocence is too precious To be lost because of our carelessness you hear me we, We must be diligent And so Uh, this particular consequence of pornography you may not have been aware of it but just two months ago it caused the state of Florida the representatives from the state of Florida to declare pornography a public health crisis because they they're tracing it back to the breakdown of manhood to the breakdown of families to a higher divorce rate and a higher sexual assault rate and so This is, it's near us. It's not just out there, it's here. And it's getting worse because even this week as uh, Representative Cory Booker, who is uh, a senator from, or Senator Cory Booker, who's a senator from New Jersey, was talking to CIA CIA Director Mike Pompeo. uh, He was not asking him, what are you gonna do as the nominated Secretary of State? What's your foreign policy gonna be? Instead, he was targeting Mike Pompeo's biblical sexual morality and asking him all of these questions that had zero to do with being a Secretary of State and everything to do with what he believed as a Christian and specifically what he believed in this area. And so while we can talk about what's out there, and we can protect our own homes, we need to recognize that we are in an increasingly hostile environment for what we are going to talk about today. And so what do we do? What do we do as people who want to say, this book guides my life, my family's life, every area of my life. What do we do to a culture that says, well, you need to keep that to yourself? Well, I will tell you, I don't think that preaching, especially in this area of what we're going to talk about today, is where we should start. But instead, we must start, church, by living it. We must start by telling a better story and modeling that story for this culture to see because there is brokenness when you walk in the path of destruction, but there is life when you walk in the path of wisdom, which is what the Song of Solomon would portray for us. In this biblical view begins with the celebration of the idea of sexual intimacy and the human need for relationships. And that's exactly what Song of Songs is all about. Now, you will hear me refer to it as the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs interchangeably because of verse 1 in chapter 1. Look at it. It says the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Okay, And so let's talk a little bit about this book. Well, first of all, you need to know that this book uh, is... uh, It's got some very provocative themes. I'll just put it that way. Did you know that uh, Hebrew men under the age of 30 were not allowed to read the Song of Solomon unless they were married? That should tell you something. Okay, Um, They were not allowed to read it. Jewish interpreters were so uncomfortable and unsure how to fit it in the canon of Scripture that they commonly interpreted it as an allegory representing Israel and God. They just wanted to totally ignore the, the plain reading of it and just say that it was about Israel and God. And this actually led Christian uh, early church fathers, uh, Christian uh, Bible commentators, to do the exact same thing and say that it was about Christ and the church. It can't be about what it talks about, because that's just grody, right? I mean, <laughs> let's just be honest. That's what they were saying in our, in our contemporary language. They, they were very uncomfortable with it, very, very much like we are. And so they just said, well, it's, it can't be about what it's talking about. It must be about something else. And you'll get a big kick out of this. Because this led an uh, uh, early Christian commentator named Origen, when the man in the Song of Solomon is describing um, how well-endowed his wife is, y'all, y'all get what I'm talking about, that they said that those two things represented not her, but they represented the Old and New Testaments. Ms. Mar- Thank you. Miss Margie gets it. <laughs> they, they, like, I'm thinking, Wow. You really must not want to talk about it to go there. That's not, we're not talking about he's not. He's not describing the beauty of his wife. He says, well, no, that, that can't be about that. It's about the Old and New Testament. Okay, that, we, we, can't, we can't do that. We have got to resort, first and foremost, to a plain reading of what it is, as uncomfortable as that may be. Because once again, why did the sexual revolution come about? Because Christians were, in some sense, afraid to talk about it. We were afraid to just embrace what was being said in this book, and so we chose to interpret it differently. What if we had just said what it says and celebrated what it celebrated? What if we just embraced that for ourselves in our own marriages and enjoyed what God has intended for us to enjoy, and then maybe people wouldn't have looked at us as if we were trying to say, well, you know, that's dirty and this is better. That, that this, this whole idea of we can't, we can't talk about sex, we can't talk about these things because that's dirty, that's something that's bad. It's not bad. And that's what the Song of Solomon is wanting to tell us this morning. It's not bad. It's something to be celebrated because God is the creator of it. And we need to understand how it fits in with the framework of a biblical worldview. Not try to interpret it first and foremost allegorically, but to celebrate it for what it is itself celebrating. And so that's where we get into this idea of the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Now, the idea of it being called the Song of Songs is kind of like it's a Hebrew way of saying it's the greatest thing. So 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 32 says that Solomon wrote over a thousand songs, a thousand and four songs to be exact. And that this was better than the 1,003 other songs that he wrote. And I will say this, if he really indeed wrote it, because we know, uh, looking at the book of Proverbs a couple weeks ago, that Solomon was not just somebody who spouted off this wisdom, but Solomon actually collected this wisdom as well. And we get that from Proverbs chapter 30, Proverbs chapter 31. We get that from the fact that... um, that, uh, that so many of Solomon's Proverbs, they were, they were his Proverbs, but then others, uh, other Proverbs were by other people. And he said, well, you know, that's just wise. And he brought it into his own book for himself. And so Solomon could have very well been looking at uh, somebody else's love and chronicling it, or he took their poems and made them his own in this book, made, made their song his song in this book. And the reason I say that that's at least a possibility that we should we should allow is because uh, this this word or this uh, phrase here, which is Solomon's at the end of verse one, <clears throat> it could mean that Solomon commissioned it. It could mean that Sol- Solomon cataloged it. It could mean that Solomon observed it, and it could mean that he wrote it. But one of the reasons I struggle with the fact of why he wrote it was the fact that Solomon didn't just have one wife. And this is where we call Solomon. Solomon was just way off the rails of the the crazy train because Solomon had 700 wives and 300 other companions, right? Solomon was not not exactly uh, somebody that we should exalt in terms of biblical covenant marriage. But the people in the Song of Solomon, they're the only ones in each other's eyes. (laughs) There is nobody else for the man in Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. There's nobody else for the woman in these poems. They are for each other. There's nobody else in their romance. And so that's one of the things that kind of makes me lean towards this, this thought that maybe, maybe Solomon just saw this love, and maybe he regretted the fact that he had gone this route of political marriage like we saw in 1 Kings chapter 3 when he married the daughter of Pharaoh. And then went on and on, marrying people for political strategy. Maybe, he, maybe later on in his life that he looked back and he regretted it. And he observed the love of these two people and he said, I wish I'd gone that route. I mean, how, how often do people do that when they walk on the path of destruction? They have a moment in their life, a moment of clarity, and they look back and they say, man, I've gone wrong and I don't even know how to get back right. I think there's, there should be some allowance for that. Because what is celebrated in the Song of Songs is biblical covenant marriage. It is, it is the idea that God created us for relationships that involve sexual intimacy between a committed husband and wife. And that those relationships are part of God's design for us. And so that's, that's the first thing we need to consider. We need to consider the, the fact that Song of Songs is part of the wisdom literature for us. And if, it is, if this wisdom literature is a path of wisdom that God wants us to walk in, then obviously the themes of Song of Songs are something that we should understand within the framework of a biblical worldview. And so we talked about these three other books, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job, as three different perspectives on living the good life. And we think, well, the other two uh, wisdom books, Psalms and Song of Solomon or Song of Songs, are just kind of thrown in there because they're not Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. But no, these two books go together very intentionally. Because think about it. Let me ask you this question. When God created Adam and Eve and he put them in the garden, what were the two relationships that Adam and Eve enjoyed? A relationship with God and a relationship with each other, right? What do we find in the book of Psalms? we find a guide about how to pray and commune with God with hope. That's what we find in the book of Psalms. By no accident. What did Adam and Eve enjoy before sin entered the world? A relationship with God where they walked with him in his presence. And then what do we know about the fact that they were in the Garden of Eden together, together that God married them. And that At the end of Genesis chapter 2, there's that line put in there that, that uh, a man shall leave his father and the father and mother, and he shall uh, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So the two relationships that were present in the Garden of Eden before sin ever entered the world were a relationship with God and a relationship between a husband and wife. And what do we have in Psalms and the Song of Songs? We have a relationship with God celebrated... And in the Song of Songs, we have a relationship between a husband and wife, celebrated. And so there's there's no doubt that this is God's wisdom for us. That God established this relationship between a husband and a wife. God established these these ideas of pleasure, romance, intimacy, and oneness. And it is His design for us to embrace these as part of healthy marriage relationships with our spouses. And so let's spend a few minutes exploring these themes that are found in the Song of Solomon. Well first of all you need to know that the Song of Solomon is filled with descriptive language. Interesting descriptive language at that and FYI I know uh, I, I've joked with Hayden and Garrett uh, in, uh, in our college class this morning the, these pickup lines are not necessarily transferable uh, from the Hebrew culture to ours. I, uh, Garrett, don't, don't say that, uh, that, that a woman's nose is like the Tower of Lebanon, that, that, that her teeth are like a flock of sheep grazing in the field. I mean, that, that might work. You might, be want, you might want to give that a try, but I'm just going to warn you that might not produce a result. Uh, that's just free advice, brother. That, that just, that just, you might not want to go that route, okay? But, but these are these not necessarily meant to be primarily... I mean, that, that, this, this is a, a little picture that somebody actually made uh, based on what they say about each other, right? And so, uh, you know, your eyes are like doves and your neck is like uh, the stone wall of Jerusalem and all these other kinds of things. they're, they're They're not Christian pickup lines, okay? We don't need to treat them like that. But this language is very, very descriptive for a reason. And that is because God designed us as physical beings to be attracted to people physically. God designed us as physical beings to be ex- uh, uh, attracted to people physically. In fact, uh, y'all've heard about how how Eve was named, right? When God took Adam's rib out of him and he made Eve, he formed Eve when when God presented her before before Adam, Adam looked at her and said, "Whoa, man." Right? Y'all heard that? And that's yeah. okay. Some of y'all get that. Uh that, I mean, that There is this idea that God created us, and God created the idea of attraction. And if you read the book of Song of Songs, that's what you get. You get this idea that physical attraction is part of life. It's part of healthy relationships. And yet, just like we've talked about the four biblical plot lines of the Bible, creation, fall, redemption, restoration... As God created us to be physical creatures, attracted uh, to other uh, people physically, the fall has distorted that. And the way that the fall has distorted that is it's made us, not, it's made us only care about the physical. And if you look around, this, around you in the world, that's exactly what we see. I mean, there, there are whole websites dedicated to just the evaluation of somebody's physical characteristics websites that made a lot of money just because of that very principle because there's something wrong in humanity that we would treat another person a different way just based on the way that they look physically that was never God's design even though God created physical attraction and so what I want to do is uh, is I want to I want to just take a moment and there's two of these principles I want to apply them first of all to younger people because we've got younger people in here. And then I want to apply it to uh, those of us who are married because I think that's important as well, okay? So th- what do you do if you're younger with this reality of physical attraction? Well, first of all, young people, you need to know that uh, attraction is not something that should be ignored. You, you don't need to just not care about your physical appearance, but at the same time, it is very easy, especially in the world that we live in, to put too much weight on, on your physical appearance that ultimately, ultimately, the book of Ecclesiastes and Proverbs tells us that, uh, that uh, Proverbs specifically says that beauty is fleeting, right? But that the character is something to be treasured. That if you've got a good character, if you, are, if you are becoming more and more and more like Jesus, that ultimately that is going to attract the kind of person that you want to attract. That you shouldn't just totally neglect your physical appearance, but at the same time, if you want to work on something... Work on having an attractive character in the Lord. And ask yourself, what what do I put more weight on? Evaluating a person based on their physical appearance, which is very prominent uh, among teenagers today? Or am I interested in truly knowing somebody? Because it is vanity and foolishness to care more about external beauty, beauty than internal character. Don't be fascinated with the idea of attraction because God designed you for this. It is not evil, it is, listen, very carefully, it is not evil to think that somebody is beautiful or handsome. The moment that it turns evil is when you begin to evaluate people solely upon that characteristic. So you hear phrases like this, well, she doesn't look good enough, I'm not even going to go talk to her, right? That... Listen, that, that, that basing, uh, evaluating somebody, treating somebody differently because of the way that they look is wrong in every case. We don't, we don't need to be those type of people. We need, to, we need to recognize that the heart should be the most beautiful thing about somebody. And what we find all too often, not just among teenagers but among adults, is that we're willing to compromise on the heart if the looks are good. But the problem is, is that when you, uh, when you enter into a relationship like that, you need to recognize uh, that, that there's danger there, right? Because the heart always dominates. It always comes out. And so if a person, they may, they may look beautiful on the outside, but when their heart comes out, that's what you're really going to be married to if that's the route you choose to go. It's, it's kind of like... Um, uh, there's some, uh, some, some radio hosts that I listen to, uh, Rick and Bubba. They say, it is very possible uh, to out-crazy your fineness. <laughs> you hear what I'm saying? That it is very possible to out-crazy your fineness. Your heart always comes out. So what should you be working on? Because let me tell you, when you're 65... And this is where the advice to married couples comes in. When, you, when, you, when you're getting older, right? Not everything's the same as it used to be. And if marriage is first and foremost about physical attraction, and it's not about knowing the person, which let's remember what did, what did the Bible use in the old King James to talk about Adam and Eve, that he knew his wife. God created human beings to unite. And when you just try to take one part of that unity and strip it away from the other, unity, the other unions that need to take place, if, you just try, if you're just so worried about physical appearance that you're not cultivating godliness in your heart, then that is, that is a recipe for disaster in any marriage. If you become so in, uh, infatuated with external physical appearance, that the heart is meaningless or that your heart is meaningless, then you're headed down a path of destruction. And so what does this say specifically, though, to married people? Married people, the covenant of marriage is a license to enjoy one another. You hear me? The covenant of marriage is a license to enjoy one another. And that is exactly what we see in the Song of Solomon. Physical attraction is God's gift to those who have committed themselves in covenant marriage. Do not be ashamed of that. It's between you and your spouse and the Lord. Nobody else is to enter into that union, but enjoy one another in that union. Physical physical attraction is enhanced by unseen connections of emotion and spirituality. Love is an action. It is not an accident. If you want better romance in your marriage, it happens by intentionality. So choose to serve and love. So that is the reality of physical attraction. The next thing we see is the intensity of desire, the intensity of desire. Throughout the poems and the Song of Songs, there is a constant longing that the man and the woman have for one another, and this is no accident. Men and women have been created in a complementary manner in every way. We were made to fit together physically, spiritually, and emotionally. And this is ordained of God. And it manifests itself as a longing to be together. And we see this all throughout, especially the first three chapters. You see the the woman crying out uh, for her man, and the man crying out for his woman. And Just look in in, uh, Song of Songs chapter 3. Look at chapter 3, and you see chapter 3, verse 2. I will rise now and go about in the city, in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go. One of the things that is celebrated in the Song of Songs is the intensity of desire. And young people, guess what? What? God created us with desire, but because of sin, our desires have been corrupted and cannot be trusted. Our desires have been corrupted and cannot be trusted. Look at verse 5. She says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases or until it is appropriate or right. So what does that mean? It's the best illustration I could give you of the portrayal of love in the Song of Solomon. Think about fire. If you have fire in a fire pit or in a fireplace, there's so much you can do with it, right? It's life-giving, it can keep you warm, you can cook food over it, but the moment that you let that fire get out of that fire pit or that fireplace, what happens? Destruction. Young people, God has designed you to be creatures of desire, but your desires need not be trusted. Instead, your desire, desires need to be reined in by the Word of God and by submitting to His will. And as you submit to His will, desire can be a very good thing, especially as you come into the context of marriage. Desire is a very good thing. But if you engage in are intimate with somebody outside of the context of covenant marriage, just like that fire getting outside of the fireplace, it will... Destroy. It will destroy everything. It will destroy your respect for the other person. It will destroy uh, your own. It could destroy your own health. It will destroy the security and wholeness that God created sexual activity to uh, to promote. It will lead to selfishness. It will lead to objectification, and that is exactly why our society is as sick as it is today. Is because it has been taken outside that context. And so don't awaken desire until it's right. Another illustration I use often with, uh, with young people is don't go shopping with no money. Right? You, uh, you go to the mall or you go to the store and you know you can't buy anything. You don't have any money in your wallet. You don't have any money in your pocket. And, uh, and you find something that you really, 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 really want. Well, first of all, if you know you can't buy it, don't go in the store. Okay? Apply that to dating, Okay, please. Uh, if you if, if you if you know you don't need to go if you know that you don't need to go to a specific place in a relationship then don't put yourself in a position to go there okay just put it as plainly as I can but if you're if you if you go into a store and you find something you want but it's not the right time what are you going to do you're going to go and you're going to say can you put this on hold for me for seven years or so you know don't go shopping with no money. Don't enter into these kind of relationships where you're just like, I love you, Let me, I love you, I love, I love you. And it's like, really? Do you really? Be very careful about that. And you want to know one of the best ways to be careful about that? You see, all throughout my Bible, I have uh, where it says, you know, like she said this and he said this, and you come to these places where it says the others said this you need some very well developed others in your life godly people who love you who can look at you and say you're saying you love that person but they are definitely not right for you you need you you don't you don't need to go there because in a multitude of counselors there's safety you need people in your life who can say hey listen you're 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 being driven right now by emotion unrestrained emotion but Can I help you understand what true love is? True love is being able to say no to what you want right now for the benefit of the other person. And so maybe right now is not the best time for you to be in a relationship. Adults, we need to be the others to some of these kids, but not in a forceful way. We need to to shepherd them through these relationships because there is a culture of... Of, of this hyper-relational activity and hyper-sexualization that is coming upon them through media, through friends at school, and they don't need, they don't need people that, that they don't feel comfortable talking to about these things. They need people who can shepherd them through these times, who love them through these times. And we need to be those kind of others in their life. But that's the application for young people. What about for married people? Well, you need to remember that God created you to love with intensity because love is life-giving to you and your spouse. Men, we cannot be lazy in pursuing and seeking our wives. Because I can promise you, if we are lazy in pursuing and seeking our wives, then her eye will be caught by another. We must be cautious. We must be careful. But most of all, we must be intentional. We need to let this desire press us to know, but also to be known. We need to seek And we need to love and we need to serve and we need to do so recognizing that this is healthy relational activity that is self-sacrificing, that is not worried about my own needs. If you serve and you pour out, then you will cultivate romance in your spouse. Never stop pursuing, never stop desiring, never stop loving your spouse. Men, this this is the best advice I could give you, okay? I, I, I was at the gas station at 4.30 this morning and there were three trucks there and all of, all of them were going fishing, okay? So don't give me the story that you can't do something, man. You can do it, okay? Love your wives intentionally. Carve out 20 minutes at the beginning of each week and ask yourself the question, how can I love my wife this week? And it, it'll look different for every woman in this room, but if you're intentional about it, then it will profit you in the long run a lot more than fishing will. And so don't don't give up. Don't become lazy in love. Grass will not look greener on the other side if you are watering your own grass. Just leave it that way, okay? All right, so everybody is so uncomfortable, and I can see it on your faces, and you're ready to go. So I want to tell you this. I I do not interpret the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs allegorically, but I will tell you this. Augustine said this, he said that ultimately we are supposed to uh, look at the good gifts of God as rays of sunlight that come down from the sun. We feel their warmth, we are blessed by them, right? but we don't praise the ray, we praise the thing that is giving the ray, giving the warmth. And so, recognize that God created you for relationships, that God gave you relationships in your life for a purpose. But ultimately, ultimately, it's so that you can understand the love of God more, that you can understand uh, the, uh, the security that God wants you to have more in a relationship with Him. And this is, this is where I want to end. Not everybody in this congregation is married. Some of you are in a season of singleness or some of you God's called to be single for the rest of your life. And let me say this very clearly. You are not deficient because you're single. Please don't ever think that. If God has called you to that lifestyle, then He is sufficient. And He has purposes for you that I'll never be able to do because I have a wife and four children. And so... Surrender yourself to him, just like every married couple needs to surrender themselves to the Lord. Surrender yourself to him, and in your singleness, God will use you for his glory. And so God has called you to rejoice in these relationships, to walk in them, to pursue them, to enjoy the things that he's given you. And I promise you that if we will celebrate this story, if we will celebrate the fact that God has created us for these types of relationships, we will cultivate our own marriages and we will model this kind of biblical worldview when it comes to sexuality in our own lives, then when the world wants to cast stones against us, that they will be to no avail because this is the way of life for believers. And I want to encourage you as a church family, let us walk this road with our covenant partners because in it, life will flow, not only to us, but to our kids, to our grandkids, to the people around us, because there's health there. And so, with that in mind, let me pray. Let me down.